This program is brought to you by The In Network, the place for eye-opening, thought-provoking content produced through an Ignatian lens. The In Network is produced by Loyola Productions, the American Jesuit multimedia company. Visit theinnetwork.org for more. Have you ever been in an argument with someone, knocked down, dead, straight argument, and you have an ace up your sleeve and it's like, I could say this, I could, I'm going to pull this out. And then you hear a voice and the voice says, are you sure you want to say that? Because it's the deal breaker. Mm. Whose voice is that? You're listening to the Jesuit Rec Room Podcast. Today, actor-turned-Jesuit priest Father Radmar Howe and Father Ryan Duns, blogger from the Tin Whistle Priest, invite New York Times bestselling author Carolyn Mace and Sister Nancy Sylvester, former president of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, into the Rec Room to discuss the power of prayer. The group talks about why and how they pray, the signs of prayers being heard and answered, and how to move beyond petition prayer to a place of true personal transformation. Also covered is the crisis of self-isolation, the necessity of community, and what we seek out in therapy that we used to seek out in church. Here is Carolyn Mace. I don't have an awareness of ever being out of prayer. I see God as an experience of the personal and the impersonal. The expression of God is law. Everything is law. The universe is law. Even our physical bodies run by law. Everything, we are creatures of law, nature is law. This is a full expression of God. Law equalizes everything. And I got to this through several different avenues that endorse each other, whether it's health, whether it's my medical intuition, whether I see how someone heals. In order for someone to heal, they've got to reconcile the laws that were broken in them, whether it was tribal law, whether it was emotional law, whether it was just the way they pray, they pray for the laws to be reorganized with God or laws to be revealed. A miracle is when God bends the laws of nature for you. There are mystical laws, and the physical laws of science are the mystical laws enacted at the physical level. Hmm. And what prayer does is it's the laws are still negotiable because how we experience them is this is where choice and guidance, prayer, and counsel me, God. Because every choice I make has a consequence. This is cause and effect. What I do to one, what I do is going to affect the whole. You put one thing in your body, it affects the whole. I say one. You, the, the internet is a full expression of the internet how we are all connected to each other. So for me, I recognize all prayer reaches everything through the internet. And I see religions as stories. Mm. And that the power of God is expressed through law and what makes it personal is the journey of prayer. And so then with this idea, uh, I think that's, that's, that's an interesting, um, what's different, I've never heard that before, uh, the sense of God as law. At first, I was thinking, okay, kind of, you know, smacks up in the, against the face of this idea of uh, a relationship with God, right? But but then you just said something about it, everything is connected with this inner net. There's that relationship. No, no, it's totally a relationship. Everything. It is so intimate mm-hmm. because I my whole understanding is that I am so held responsible. This is. Jesus taught law, Buddha taught law. That's what they were about. They were teachers of the law. And they said, it's in you, follow what I'm doing. 
in the Our Father, as it is in heaven, so it is on earth. As it is, what is in one is in the whole. What you do to the least of your brethren, you do to me. Get the law. Get it. I'm a teacher of the law. That is all he was. Be my hands in the world. This and other things can you do. Learn the law. Forgive. Get yourself in present time. Let go of the dead. What's the matter with you? Love is the highest law. Follow it. Get your act together. He was a teacher of the law. It's as simple as that. What, what is it about the law that is hard for people to comprehend or even grasp, right? So, for example, I, I asked the question about prayer because, you know, the recent study of the, the Pew Research Study saying that there's a, a, an increase, this increase in the unaffiliated, people who no longer affiliate themselves with any sort of religion, right? Um, not, not that they don't necessarily pray, but this idea of God is no longer you know, popular. But what you're saying, I think, might be a, a, a way in, right? In, in an, article, an article you wrote, uh, a blog posting you wrote recently, was, you said, what's missing is a sense of community and purpose. Does that have anything, would you see any relationship here? I, I think so. I, for me, one of the key issues is that we live in a culture where we try to instrumentalize everything and we want to manage things. And the law is a measure of management. Mm -hmm. I'm either in sync with the law or I'm not in sync with the law. In, in my own experience as one who prayed, when I was a fourth grader, Sister Victoria told us, every morning before your feet hit the floor, your first words should be, good morning, Lord, how are you today? What are we going to do? And 25 years later, I still say the same prayer every morning before I get oh, out of yes, bed. <laughs> because it is fundamentally relationship. But the gift of my Jesuit life has been to see that prayer is an absolute and utter waste of time. It is a, it's a waste of time. A prayer is an absolute waste of time. And that's why I pray. Because it's a waste of time on one I love. It's not quantified. It's not, I'm not doing it to get something, to build up my prayer points and then move into... Now I get a cookie, a grace cookie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's cookie. saving. I'm wasting my time. But because I set aside every day 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and say, Lord, this is our time together. The rest of my day's time is transformed. Because I'm not, because I don't have to quantify everything, it relativizes everything else. And I can say, I've spent my time with you, and this is what we're going to do today, and this is how I need your help, and please help me be the agent of mercy, and to incarnate the law of love that you revealed through Jesus Christ. And that's been exciting. It's made my, my, my Jesuit life very rich. Your answers are so sweet. Oh. <laughs> I mean, really, I love your answers. They're so sweet. Thank you. This is, this is just on the law. I think you're using that word very in a very, not unique, I don't want to say way, but I think it's a helpful way, because when you think of law and the legal system in this country, People don't relate to it the way you're talking about a law as a relational thing. I don't think people realize and talk about something to give someone to something to reflect or contemplate on is that we crave order. We crave it. We crave order. We crave justice. We crave, we crave law. We cannot function without get up in the morning. Ritual. Ritual is a form of law. It's self-imposed organizational law. Okay. And this is because that is how we psychically organize power. 
A ritual is a way we psychically organize energy and power. And it's because it is the nature of, of the whole of creation. It, it, the whole of creation is a function of energy into matter, thought into form. Thought energy must be given form, and the organization of that requires ritual. It requires choice into consequence. When one crosses the mystical bridge, one realizes that energy is in fact grace. Look, look at this building. If everyone understood that they were a building and the only and that every floor is a different altitude, here we are living on the on the penthouse floor of this building. And from here you can see that we have a lake, we're living near a lake, and we're living uh, near an airport, and we're living, we have all of these one, this wonderful view, and it's silent and quiet up here in fresh air. But our neighbors on the first floor, they can't even see the lake. They don't know they're near an airport, and they wouldn't even know they were in the same building. And they wouldn't get that they have choice and consequence. They think the world is all matter right. without energy. You have to... You have to rise every single floor in the building. Every single floor in you gives you a very different perspective. But every single floor costs a lot of money, more money to live on. And it takes a lot more energy to get up the stairs and a lot more. When you get to the penthouse, you realize, you know what? It's not energy. It's grace. Everything is grace and everything is creation. And every choice I make sets in motion a dynamic of power, and this is God's force within me. This is the force of the divine within my soul cooperating with the laws of creation. God, grant me counsel so I know what to do. As you talk about it in that way, it seems to me that you're sort of describing, I would say, the spiritual journey that we're all called to do. I mean, that kind exactly. of constant awakening, widening the lens with which we see things, being able to understand that deeper self that's motivating, because I could use power, but it might be power over, rather mm -hmm. than this Precisely. kind of energetic power that, that manifests itself in positive and, ways. And this is why I think, and this is such a mystical truth, the ultimate power then is when you realize, to this I surrender. Because I finally understand that this is so much power, I cannot use it. You must use it through me. I cannot use this. I cannot trust myself to use this. I yield to you. Would you say that there's then an inherent and an ongoing process of like reclaiming the Sabbath, of resting within that power with community? That there's a time for recreation, that in a workday world where we're constantly connected, 24-7, plugged in, able to be reached, even on vacation, a reluctance to unplug, that we've lost a concept of Sabbath, of resting within God's gracious order, of appreciating God's gracious order. And because we become hyper-individualized, my text messages, my Twitter account, my Facebook, my desire to project myself, that in a sense, I, we've become disconnected from the flesh and blood community. We have digital communities. So we've lost ongoing community with whom we are struggling and living and working and striving. You know, I think you've, you've 
put your finger on something that is much more of a crisis than people realize because what you call hyper-individualized is actually grown into the crisis of self-imposed isolationism. And we are by design tribal. We need each other. We need each other for many, many reasons, not just social, not just social, but we need each other for self-accountability. And it's because of this choice of isolation or what we call the, I need to just be myself and no one, I go find myself or I, or what do you, what do you call it? Self-individual narcissism is what I call it. Um, is that we, we told ourselves we could manage ourselves. We could just take charge of ourselves, that we're big enough in our spiritual and in our conscience, conscience britches, that we could just enter into ourselves unescorted, manage our own psyche, manage our own darkness unescorted without prayer, without, without someone, without a group, without a spiritual family to hold ourselves accountable. But we cannot do that. We must have collective accountability in the form of a community, in the form of a church, in the form of some kind of group to whom we are accountable. And because we let ourselves go without a group, we've each have decided what our own code of honor is, and we let ourselves off the hook. Hmm. Is this, does that tie into what you talk about uh, as a soul map? Is that, is that relatable to that, this idea that we all crave to belong to something? Well, I think, or is that something totally different? No, I think that we don't realize the craving we have to belong. We don't get it. We don't, we don't get it. And, and I think because we have strayed so far from each other that we, I, we have the ways we found to identify with each other is fashion, stuff, um, gangs, tattoos, doing things the same, but not reaching for each other in our humanness, in our humanness, not doing the things we should be doing together. Like, for example, recreation in the sense of con con conversation together, uh, sharing meals together, praying together, being with each other's families together, doing the things that take, here's the operative word, time. Yeah. Without a, an outcome. Without an outcome. Need and want Just to time to appreciate each other. How's your life? Tell me what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Tell me what, and, and here's another thing. We've become so filled with hubris because of the goals of got to have, got to have more, got to win, got to have, got to this, that we share in a very shallow way. What'd you do? What'd you do? What'd you have? What'd you have? What'd you do? What'd you do? So the idea of being able to truly share your humanness, like I'm having a rough time. We don't share with the people we should share. Now we have to pay for sharing our vulnerability. We have to go find someone to share it with. We have to go pay someone. 
I have to go find a therapist so I could share my humanness. When in fact, that is exactly what you should have your whole, your, 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 your community for, your people, your friends. Are you kidding me? You have to go pay someone now so that you find someone to whom you can openly tell the truth, communicate, tell them I'm having a crisis of soul, a crisis of an ethical crisis, uh, a loneliness. Who could be possibly lonely in a world of this, these many people? Yeah. But, but yeah. You know, as you were speaking, a couple of things came to me. To relate to what Ryan was asking, I was thinking that I find this, I, this coming to a point of breakdown, this, this in, hyper-individualism, isolation, that if you start looking, there are tons of these Buddhist um, retreats, and they're all filled. There are 100, 200 young people. There's a craving, and that's why I think within the Catholic community, there's such an opportunity here, because this is the moment to begin not to uh, to really invite people into this other space. I, I mean, I think the danger is that we use prayer again like everything else. It becomes, and I, I'm going to say this, and it probably sounds old-fashioned, but like the tweet. I mean, it's, it's the surface stuff. I mean, I don't think you can, yeah. you don't really go very deep if you're doing just tweets with each other. It's like a need that we don't have places where people can explore, can say things. Like, I don't believe in a God like this that I hear every hum. I don't, you know, I'm struggling with my gay, my own sexual identity, gender identity, or I'm struggling. We don't have sp safe spaces. Yeah. Because the communities and some of the churches, uh, the ones that really had worked are sort of dissolving. They're, you know, with all the closing of parishes with, you know, I've had so many sisters uh, in my life when they're, they're facing, they were teaching something, some of the new understandings, they were creating some of these spaces. A new priest came in who was much more traditional. She's fired. You know, there's, there's no right. This has happened over and over and over again. And so we have an opportunity that I think we're somewhat blind to when you hear these reports. Any, if you were head of an organization, that had that much of a, uh, folks leaving you, you would think you'd try, want to figure out why. Mm -hmm. I don't think the U.S. bishops care that these statistics come out. I think they care, but I think their approach to it may be like, okay, we gotta hunker down, you know what I mean? Let's Maybe, or bring them all back. Bring them back, somehow bring it back, you know? Well, I would say, I, think there's, I do think they care. I think there's a paralysis that is set in. I was with three Irish friends in the car the other day, and the driver refused to use the GPS because she was confident she knew exactly where she was going. We were completely lost. And so I stupidly suggested, why don't you like turn the GPS morning. on? And the woman next to me said, do not turn that thing on. It will only show us how lost we really are. Who said that, the there driver? Was, no, the other oh. passenger. I said, that's insane. Uh. But I think that's part <laughs> that's of the problem. That's a very sentence. I love that sentence. It's only gonna show us how, how lost we really are. But prayer does that. Yes, it does. And prayer and community does that. That is And so accountability great. to one another. Yes. And, and to say, when, when we take for granted and assume that people are automatons and often in narcissists and doing their own thing, it's easy to let people disperse. But when we, when we start to reclaim a sense of community, whether it's in a yoga studio for, for you know, in the, in the Bay Area, uh, hey, you weren't, you weren't at practice last week. Is, some, is something wrong? But, and this is a critique of the church, do we, if we don't see someone at mass, do we think to, to, to pick up the phone or call? I don't know that we do. I don't know that we do. I, and I think we need to, there has to be a recovery of community, of how, not only how we belong, but to whom we belong. We belong to one another, we belong to 
of Christians to Jesus Christ and the church. And it's a messy church and it's not easy to be the church. But we need to come back to a form of we're rooted together in a common and shared prayer with a common and shared mission. Like, what are we for? And I think when we've lost mission, which seems to happen a lot in the Catholic sphere, when we, what, what, what's the church for? Is it, are we paralyzed to maintain numbers? Are we paralyzed to, to just you know, be, be bulwarks against culture? Or do we say, no, we have to take the risk of we'll follow and we're going to move the church. So it's, it's, I think our choice right now is, do we, are we a swamp? Just sort of letting the water stagnate? Or do we reclaim a sense of the river, the, the, the acts of the apostles, the way, moving forward? And I think if we start to move forward again, guided by prayer and communal discernment, I think that I think we'll f- reclaim the energy that is, we tap into what's already here. As you speak about that, one of the reasons back in 2000, when I did the, uh, the presidential address for LCWR, Leadership Conference of Women Religious, and spoke about the impasse that I felt many women religious were at with the hierarchical church, why the, the need to imagine new ways through communal contemplation? Because I, I feel like it's time to really share and test the insights. You know, it, it's, a, it's a probably a, a form of discernment, clearly, but it's like really both doing it together, but then also practicing it and how we speak and interact with each other and sharing the wisdom of what's next kind of thing. So it's not just on your own and alone and isolated, you know, and then you just act. See, I think when you get to that top penthouse, which may have, you know, it's a life journey, but when, when you start to see that you don't act out of your constructed self or the egoic self, the ego self, I think, serves then the divine who's speaking through and in you. So um, you then don't, I don't want to act the same way I've acted in some ways when I've been more um, driven by my own desire for success, my own hubris, my own, I want to make sure I get you know, the credit or all those things that then are the charge, you know, you're trying to talk to someone that you disagree with, but you are really, the knife is in the back and you're turning it. it those things no longer uh, serve a purpose. They no longer serve the purpose that you feel you're doing. And so how do you act then differently? What is the next step forward, right? You were talking about moving forward. How do we um, um, teach contemplation, teach the law in such a way that it is understandable and hearable by uh, uh, not just young people, because I think it, it affects adults as well. It's, just, it's our culture, right? Where we are now blocked off to, these, to, to, to opportunities within religious spheres. So let's start with, okay, how do we know that our prayers are actually answered or even heard? It's attunement. Hmm. If, if you're going to teach singing, you start teaching by getting someone to sing a first note and saying, no, you're off pitch here yeah. or there. But you can't start the singing process until the person has risked being corrected and coming to know that I'm really out of tune, but I, I can, can commit to growing. So it's the taking the first risk of, of trying to pray and then finding very often that where we start at with our prayer, really, it's what we want right now, but it's not what we desire. And that over time, we start to see against the horizon of grace that those things that we thought were so important that we wanted so much actually begin to pale and they become, we see them as sort of fragile or silly or not, not really what we, it's what we wanted, but it's not what we desire. And that we, it's not that we're going to get a thing like God drops off Christmas presents, 
but that we start but to see the world want, differently. People want those Christmas presents, right? They're like, I prayed, I, I, I want to get this relationship. They want finite things, but they yeah. only last for so long. I mean, nothing, we have an infinite restlessness, an infinite hunger, that no finite thing. You could build this penthouse building, it's beautiful, but the next thing you're going to want to do is build a better and more spectacular one. There's nothing that will, nothing finite will ever satisfy the infinite longing of the human heart. And I think that's why we have, we, we have people paralyzed today, paralyzed and crippled because they thought, I have everything I want, but I have no one. And, or the one whom I seek most, I don't feel I can, I'm in touch with. And so to break down the idols that we've built our, our lives around and to allow in that, the rubble to, to, to risk experiencing God, to retune us. So we have to undergo God, undergo grace. Yeah. You know, for me, when I work with people, I incarnate the answer to prayer into their experience of life. Well, because your own intuitive system speaks to you constantly. You know when you are right or when you're wrong. That is an answer to a prayer. Your answers talk to you through your biology. They talk to you through your conscience. They talk to you, that's the voice of God. Mm. That's the voice of God speaking right through what I would call your organic divinity. I love that because most people are like, how do I know it's God, not just my own? You, you know it because it won't leave you alone. Mm -hmm. God doesn't leave you alone. And that's organic divinity right then and there. And when you do not follow organic divinity, the organic voice of God, you will lose your strength because that's the law of God. You will lose your strength. I love, I, I don't use that word organic divinity, divinity, but I think that is so right. I, because, you know, often I, I'll talk about the three centers of our knowing, so our, our mind and our heart and then our God or our intuition. And that's where it will, you do know, and there is that gut knowing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it'll surprise you. You know, that's part of it. It may not be what you formulated. So I think, I mean, I love, I, I love that organic. Uh, if you just say gut knowing, Nancy, they're going to think it's a hit every now and yes, again, I but mean, it's not. Like, it's a living, a... breathing constant. Even down to, I shouldn't eat this, says the diabetic to the cookie. <laughs> and that's God, too, in your organic divinity. So it's not just this, should I, should I go here or should I do this? Because if you put it into gut, intuition they're going to think it's a great big huge thing and it's not it's down to should i buy this should i do this because it's all about the divine in the small details of your life always helping you manage your survival at the physical level your conscience in every detail why because every choice you make is actually a profound act of creation mm -hmm. it's a great connection that last part too what you just said for me, it would be like what prayer then does is disposes you, disposes me to be much more attentive to that, those impulses, instincts that say this and this, and not just too quickly negate them, choose differently, build up my resistance to that. Prayer is much more of a, of a softening, of a, totally. a, a, an awareness, of an attunement that one cultivates. And oftentimes, if there is this, when I pray, 
in the morning in my, my set time, that's not sometimes the most important part. The most important times are the other, the rest of the day, rest of the day. as it gets interactive. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know how to quite say to someone here, it depends that so, what does it mean? I mean, since we're all connected and, and we all hear it, perhaps the vibrations mm -hmm. go out, but that's a, it's a hard one for someone who's, who still sees a dispenser God. I mean, exactly, so, how do, so let's move on then. How do we move forward, right? If that's still where they're at, how do we get, I don't want to say get them there, but start the conversation. The words inspire. How do we inspire? Thank you. Inspire them to think another way of how to connect with God, divinity, energy. The law makes sense to people. It'll just Myth does not. Language that is too vague doesn't make any sense to people. You can't use that kind of language anymore. The way the intellect is today is it's a high-tech grounded intellect and you cannot say things like God loves you. It doesn't make sense to people. They don't even understand if their mother loves them. Most people struggle with that concept of love in terms of even if their husband or wife loves them. You cannot introduce vague concepts. You have to ground it very much in Show me an experience of that. So you say to them, well, have you ever been in an argument with someone, knocked down, dead, straight argument, and you have an ace up your sleeve, and it's like, I could say this. I could. I'm going to pull this out. And then you hear a voice, and the voice says, are you sure you want to say that? Because it's the deal breaker. Mm -hmm. Everyone's had that experience. Whose voice is that? Because it's not yours. You have to ground it into where they say, yeah, I have. Well, then I want you to think about whose voice that is, because in that moment, you're not smart enough and you're not wise enough to talk to yourself that way. So who said that to you? Who stopped you from destroying a relationship that means the world to you? So I want you to go and write me a paper on that, because you don't have the intellect, the courage, or the guts to stop yourself. Something did. That's God in your life. You gotta put meat on the bones for these people today. I would go with uh, the Metropolitan Busing Authority in New York. If you see something, say something. Yeah. And we have to yeah. invite. I mean, very often we're so reluctant, I think Catholics especially, we're reluctant to invite people to opportunities to pray and to be part of the community. You, no one has ever been convinced by an argument no, I mean, arguments, Bingo. positions, we're not, it's not argument. We, we convince because we manifest value. And we show that in this church, in the, my relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, I, I'm living a life in, this, in the spirit that is, you know, helping me to work toward the kingdom of God and let, allowing me to put my gifts and talents to that, that ultimate end. And if I see in you a person who is obviously hungry for something of the spirit, it is my duty to say, Bradmar, come, come and see. I want you to meet this person just as we do on Yelp, if we like a good meal, yeah. so too, we, we, we need Yelp for the church. Yeah. Like if we, when we are being fed well, when we are excited and enlivened, we, we should see something, know someone, and say something. I think that's, and invite them to become a part of the story. And people, I think, are, have, like there's narrative flabbiness. They have weak narratives that don't make any sense. Invite them in through spiritual exercise to tone up, to take on a new story. I think that could be, and make it an adventure for them. Just as a compliment, perhaps, is also to create greater, the arts. I mean, 
new images, new metaphors, new songs <clears throat> that create another image mm -hmm. of how God is in a world that isn't a three-tier universe anymore, mm -hmm. in an understanding of our reality in new ways so that we could really have it in our left and our right brain, right? The, the arts would be a way, too, I think, that well done, would yes. be something no more who invite people. <laughs> well, maybe not. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Right. You know, when you think back, Gregorian chant touches into the tonal, you know, the vibrational right. things, right. and that's one of the beauties of it. We don't, what in our current music, is there anything that can bring people into that deeper sense, our vi sort of one with the ohms of the, and the chakras and the vibrational pieces? So maybe, you know, the whole art, the artistic dimension of it. Is so it Lady like, Gaga should write a mass. Well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I don't know that for sure. You know what? People need awe. Yes, they do. crave it. They crave, they want to hear God call them by name, Nancy. They crave it. They want to know that they, that their life has meaning and purpose. They don't want to look for it. They want to have it awakened. They want to know my life is, I was given life for a meaning. They want the sacred to touch them and strumming guitars will never no, do that no i mean that's what the gregorian did yeah. and and the beauty of incense i mean all some of those things that are rich in our tradition were very sensual very Absolutely. yeah and um, yeah they were holy mm -hmm. they were holy This program is brought to you by the in network the place for eye-opening thought-provoking content produced through an ignatian lens the In Network is produced by Loyola Productions, the American Jesuit multimedia company. Visit theinnetwork.org for more.